G'day. If you don't know me, my name is Glenn. If you haven't yet worked out from my accent, I'm Australian. I, uh, I grew up in Sydney, but I remember growing up as a, a teenager, every year we would travel down to my cousin's farm, which was like 12 hours drive away. We loved it. We would go shooting rabbits, We'd go riding motorbikes. I learned to drive a car on the farm. We'd help with the, with the work on the farm. It was awesome. I remember one year in particular when I think I was about 16 and I was with my brother and my two cousins and we were out looking for some goats. We were out, sent out to check on them. It had rained a couple of days before. So we're, we're off on our way down this dirt road. Now we're traveling in a ute. Now in Australia it's called a ute, in America or other countries you might call it a pickup or a truck. Essentially it's a cabin and then a flatbed behind it. There's four of us. So there's only room in the front for two. So my cousin's driving, my brother's in the passenger seat, and so my other cousin and I are on the back and we're holding onto the roll bar, we're driving along and we're checking for goats. Of course it's rather boring, right? So in our youthful recklessness, We start sticking our hand in the window of the car, annoying my brother, annoying my cousin. He's like, hee, this is awesome. <laughs> and then and up ahead, there's a puddle left by the rain, which covers like half of the road. And my cousin, who's driving, says, this will cool him off. And so we go through this puddle, and this wall of water just comes up on the side. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. And then the car starts going side. And then things go into slow motion. I remember vividly a picture of me falling and looking straight up, and there's the car. And the next thing I know, I'm on the ground, screaming, screaming with all my lungs, screaming long enough for me to work out, wait, I'm not in pain, I'm okay, I'm okay. But I couldn't move. The roll bar had pinned me to the ground. The roll bar that I was holding on so tightly to was now holding me. What had happened was that we had hit this water and it had pulled the car hard left. We'd hit the embankment and rolled over. Now, to cut a long story short, all the other guys were fine. One of them rushed off, found help. I was rescued and I was rushed off to hospital. And within 10 days, I was back riding motorbikes and shooting rabbits again, and it was fine. But as I processed that event, a number of realizations came to mind. One, had I been even a few centimeters to the left, I would have been crushed by the cabin. I would have died. And had that roll bar which is good seven centimeters thick, not bent around my hip miraculously, I would have been paralyzed. And with those realizations came a strong impression from the Lord that despite my recklessness, he had protected me because he had still had plans for my life. What's your story? What events have defined your life? Who are the, the people who've had significant influence in your life? What's your story? 
You know, stories can have a powerful influence in our life. From young, we're told stories that inspire our imagination. And as we get older, we start to hear the stories of where we came from. Stories explain why things are the way they are. Stories can even shape whole generations and cultural values. The stories we tell ourselves and the stories we believe, whether they're real or not, have a strong influence on how we respond to different situations in our lives. Well, this morning, we're looking at a story in the Bible. It is a real story. Despite the presence of a talking donkey, this is not a fairy tale. It actually happened and has been written down so that we can learn from it. Now, if you've just joined us this morning, we are in the middle of a series of sermons where we are dipping in to parts of the history of Israel in the Old Testament. It's a genre of scripture called Old Testament narratives. And each time we're doing that, we get to see the way in which God is interacting with his people. But we also get the privilege of being able to see it from the perspective of the New Testament. You see, these stories in the Old Testament are not just nuggets of wisdom or parables like Aesop's fables. The Bible is not simply a collection of good moral lessons. You know, like, always be kind to your mother. No, they're part of a much greater story, a story of salvation that spans thousands of years. It's God's story. So... If that's the case, what do we do with Numbers 22? I mean, what does Balaam, a mercenary prophet hired to curse armies, have to do with God's big story of salvation? Why is it here in the Bible? I mean, think about it for a second. Balaam's not an Israelite. He's not a prophet of Yahweh. All we know about him is that he is from a small tribe uh, in Pethor, which is somewhere in modern-day Iraq, and that he has managed to make a living out of cursing people, and that's why Balak calls him. Now, add to that some other fairly strange characters, including a sword-bearing angel, the mysterious princes of Moab, and a talking donkey, and it really just starts to look a little something like it came out of Pixar or DreamWorks. You know, admittedly, right, talking donkeys aren't that surprising to us anymore. If you've seen the all seven Shrek movies. (laughs) But donkeys in real life typically don't talk. Well, when, when we encounter strange stories in the Bible like this, they are there because they are about something bigger than themselves. The story is there to make a point. It's not standalone. So that means that understanding the context of that story is crucial for us to working out what that point is. So let me fill you in on the story so far. God calls Abraham out of the Ur of Chaldeans and he says, go to the place that I will show you. And along the way, he gives him some incredible promises. He promises that he will make him into a great nation and that he promises that he will give him the land of Canaan. And fast forward several hundred years, and that nation is now in Egypt, and they are being 
persecuted. They are being oppressed severely, and they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord answers, raising up Moses and Aaron. Together, these two men boldly confront Pharaoh with the message, let my people go. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he refuses. And the Lord demonstrates again and again that he is more powerful than Pharaoh. And finally, the Lord kills all the firstborn males in Egypt, including Pharaoh's son. Pharaoh breaks. Get out, he says. Leave. And so that night, more than one million people do a mass exodus out of Egypt. And the Lord is leading them, and he takes them, and he takes them to this place where they are cornered between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. And God miraculously parts the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land, and then he drowns the Egyptians after they come through to follow them. And so begins the book of Numbers. See, Moses and Aaron take account of all the men 20 years and over. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. They've escaped Egypt. Now, who do we have? Now, Numbers 2, verse 32 tells us that at that time there were 603,550 men. Now, of course, that doesn't mean the women weren't important. It just means they weren't expected to fight. So we can pretty safely assume then that there would be over a million people. So to give you some context, that's about roughly the population of Dallas, Texas. It's about half the population of Dubai. It's about a third of the population of Cape Town. It's about a tenth of the population of Bangalore. What a logistics nightmare. I mean, no sewage, no running water, and they were on the move. Every time they left, they had to pack down all their tents, and then they had to set them up again when they stopped. And sometimes they would stay in one place for like one, two days, and and in other places they would be there for a few months. And each time, the Lord would lead them on with a column of smoke by day and a column of fire by night. The Lord was protecting them, and he was providing for them. Each morning, they had breakfast in bed. Well, sort of. Manna that fell on the ground was this coriander seed-like thing which they were able to gather up and make into food, and they had endless supplies of it. Every day, they had enough food for the day. Now, you'd think, right, that the Israelites would be grateful. They would be constantly amazed at this Lord who has demonstrated incredible power, has redeemed them out of Egypt. He is constantly providing for them everything they need right now in a desert of all places. But the sad story is, in the book of Numbers, that they are not grateful at all. They complained about everything. They complained about the manna, they complained about the water, they complained about Moses, they complained about how the Levites got to be priests and not other, other tribes as well, and they complained that there were scary people in the land of Canaan and it would be too difficult to get in, and God hates complaining, so much so that in Numbers 26, after 40 years in the wilderness, 
we read that there were now only 601,730 fighting men left. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest, who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Incredible. I mean, here they are on the plains of Moab, about to enter the promised land, and over the course of the last 40 years, this whole generation, more than one million people that God had physically redeemed out of Egypt, have perished and have failed to enter the promised land, all except two men. And this is where Balak and Balaam come in. Now, Balak is the king of the Moabites. And he's kind of freaking out that there's this big army that's wandering through his land. And he'd heard what they just did to the Amorites. He heard what happened to the Egyptians. They have gained a reputation for being miraculously rescued by their God. So Balak knows that he needs some supernatural help with this one. So he sends for Balaam. He sends the princes of Moab off to go get him. And the first time, God tells Balaam, don't go with them. And so he doesn't. And then we read in Numbers 22, verse 20, God says, go with them. So Balaam goes. Okay, well, maybe God changed his mind between the the two comings. That's all right. But immediately then in verse 22, God gets angry with Balaam because he went. What? That doesn't seem right. Is God changing his mind again? What are we missing here? Well, what we're missing is that the Lord sees what we don't see. The Lord sees the heart. The clue is down in verse 32 when Balaam finally sees the angel of the Lord in front of him. And this is what the angel of the Lord says to him. Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. So it's not simply that Balaam was going, but it was the way in which he went. His way was perverse before the Lord. Now, the sense of the Hebrew word here that the ESV translates as perverse, I think might be better translated as reckless. It carries the idea that Balaam was impetuous or he's thoughtless in his going. You know, his way was reckless before the Lord. He went ahead of the Lord instead of following him. He rushed in without consideration of the consequences, thinking he knew what to do. He didn't take time to consider the second part of the Lord's command. Do you remember what the Lord said up in verse 20? Go with them, but only do what I tell you. And then the angel of the Lord repeats that again because clearly Balaam's forgotten. Verse 25, speak only the word that I tell you. You see, Balaam is reckless. 
That's why the Lord is angry with him. He's, he's reckless. He's so blinded that he doesn't even see the angel of the Lord right in front of him. So blinded that it takes a talking donkey to open his eyes to the reality of the danger that he's in. You know, if it wasn't for his faithful donkey, he would have been killed three times over. But why a donkey? Did you think about that in your community groups this week? Why did God choose to open the mouth of the donkey? Well, because it provides a picture of Balaam in God's hands. You see, Balaam is really going with the intent to curse the Israelites. That's what's in his heart. That's what the Lord sees. That's why he's angry with him. And each of these three encounters that Balaam has with the angel of the Lord prefigures the three times that Balaam tries to put a curse on the Israelites, and each time the Lord turns it and blesses the Israelites instead. Now, in the same way that the Lord can make a donkey speak to warn Balaam of the danger he's in, he can also make Balaam speak blessings instead of curses. Speak only what I tell you. So, what's the moral of the story? If you're reckless like Balaam, you'll be confronted by a donkey? Well, maybe. But knowing the rest of the story in Numbers, we can see that Moses recorded this story to make a point. You see, this small account of Balaam is a story within a story. It's like a a living parable of what's going on in the bigger story of the book of Numbers. Balaam's recklessness is a live picture of the recklessness of the nation of Israel. Similar to Balaam, Israel had been given clear commands from the Lord, do only what I tell you. They have the Ten Commandments, the living word of God. More than that, as well, they have Moses. I mean, Moses doesn't just get impressions or pictures from God. God God speaks to him clearly. The phrase that we read in Numbers 12, verse 8, is that God speaks with Moses mouth to mouth. And yet, despite knowing clearly what they are to do, they complained and they disobeyed. They went ahead of the Lord thinking they knew best. They rushed in headlong to whatever came to their minds. And the result? Death. They failed to enter the promised land, the land that God had promised them centuries before to Abraham. But you know there's a difference between Balaam and that that generation of Israelites. Balaam doesn't die He's spared because his donkey speaks up and warns him. And that is why this story is in the book of Numbers. It's a warning. It's like a summary of the whole book, which is warning this new generation of Israelites, don't be reckless. Don't rush in headlong into this land that I'm giving you without listening carefully to what the Lord has already told you. Don't be like this generation of Israelites that fail to enter because of their recklessness. Be careful. But you know that warning 
isn't just for that first generation of Israelites. It's for us as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, looking back on the history of Israel, says this, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. See, the story of Balaam is the story within the story of Numbers, and the story of Numbers is the story within the much bigger story of salvation, God's story of salvation. His story of how he has been calling to himself a people, bringing them out of spiritual slavery and into an eternal, eternal promised land. People from every tribe and tongue and nation, people whom he has set his name on, who are his, redeemed for the purpose of showing his glory, not only to the watching world, but to the heavenly rulers and authorities. It's not just a story. This is the story. All the stories in the Old Testament are just paragraphs and chapters that are leading up to the climax of the story when Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Like the generation of Israelites who attempted 40 years in the wilderness and perished, Jesus was tempted 40 days in the wilderness. And Satan came at him with every temptation that was common to man. But Jesus didn't sin. Jesus fully obeyed all the commandments of the Lord. He only did what his father told him. He wasn't reckless. He knew what God's word said, and he listened and obeyed. He lived carefully, and he lived faithfully. And it's because he didn't sin that Jesus was able to make a way into the promised land for people like you and I, people who are actually just like that first generation of Israelites. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he was taking on himself all of our sin, all the times when we have not fully obeyed him. All the times when we've recklessly rushed into relationships or situations without considering what the Lord has said. All the times when our thoughtlessness and our carelessness has hurt others or hurt ourselves. All the times when our hearts have been perverse before the Lord and we've worshipped other things instead of Him. And every time that we've cared about our own reputation more than His. Every time we've boasted in our talents or our accomplishments. And every time we've complained about our lot in life. All of it. All of our sin all of our shame, he took on the cross so that we would not perish in the wilderness. We would not face eternal death. But instead, he has secured for us eternal life with him. Just as Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, all those who have been united with Christ through faith will rise again to eternal joy with him. Is that your story? Can you say, all I have is Christ? 
Apart from him, I have no good thing. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian. Well, if that's the case, perhaps you might for a minute consider that I might be a talking donkey. Let these words from Numbers 22 be a wake-up call that the sword of the angel of the Lord is right in front of your face. Whether you can see it or not, the Lord's judgment is upon all mankind. And it is coming, even if we can't see it right now. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This morning, Jesus is inviting you in to his grand story of salvation. His pen is ready to write your name into the pages of history as one who has escaped the punishment of death. Your name will be listed among those who have been saved and will enjoy eternity with him. The invitation is to repent now before it's too late. Repent of your sin, turn away from living recklessly and start listening to the Lord. Listen to what he has already done in Christ. Listen to what he has said as you read his word. Listen to what he is doing amongst his people as they go out. You know, you can do that even today. Come and talk to me or to one of the other elders or a member of our church. Don't let this day go without taking time to consider what the Lord has said to you in his word. But what if you're already a Christian? Well, this passage is still a warning for us too, and it is a warning that we must take seriously. You see, Balaam's story didn't end with pronouncing God-forced blessings on Israel. Knowing God wouldn't let, them, wouldn't let him put a curse on them Balaam told Balak what he should do. In Numbers 31, 16, we find out that it was on Balaam's advice that Balak sent in his women amongst the Israelites. And they seduced the men into sexual immorality. And he led the peop- they led the people to worship Baal. It wasn't through a full force frontal attack that this generation of Israelites failed to obey the Lord. It was through the subtle and seductive work of the Moabite women. They were led astray because they left their brains at the door and they headed straight on in, forgetting what the Lord had already said. You know, this is what was also happening in Revelation 2, in the church in Pergamum, the passage that Mike read for us earlier this morning. You know, some people in that church were saying that aspects of the culture in which they lived weren't all all that bad. They said, look, it's okay to take part in idol worship and go to church as well. 
I mean, it's all grace, right? So we can do what we want. Jesus refers to that as the teaching of Balaam, being taken astray by the seductiveness of the philosophies and the, the things, the values of the world around us. Does that describe you? Do you live like everyone else in Dubai during the week and then you come to church on Friday? Have you stopped to think about your lifestyle and your choices? Have you considered that they maybe don't line up with what God has already told you? You know, it's possible that your life is more characterized by recklessness than you'd like to admit. If you've not recently stopped to evaluate the way you spend your money or the way you relate to other people, then there's a good chance that you're living a little recklessly, that you're in danger of being seduced by the aspects of Dubai culture that would lead you away from worshiping the Lord. You know, in our church covenant, the members of the church have made this promise together. We will seek, by God's help, to live carefully in this world, denying ungodliness and worldly passions. We will strive to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how should we do that? How should we live carefully in Dubai? Well, as I was preparing this week, I was reading through the book of Numbers again and noticed some of the ways in which Israel was being reckless before the Lord. And I I put them into two categories to help us think through and make evaluation of our lives. Those categories are relationships and resources. And my hope is that it would prompt us to go back to God's word and think carefully about our decisions. So the first category, relationships. One of the things that marked the Israelites in the wilderness was disunity. They were reckless with their words and they were jealous of one another. Are you jealous of other people in this church? Do you look at what they have, whether it's friendships or status, and wish you had that too? Are you reckless or careless with your words? It's so easy, isn't it, to just open our mouths without thinking. And before we know, we've, we've hurt someone. And instead of building up, we're just breaking down. Let's be careful with our words. Let's consider how we can use our conversations as ways of being a blessing to one another, of building up and encouraging. Well, another thing that marked the Israelites was their complaints about Moses. The Lord took this very seriously, and so should we. You know, Moses was by no means perfect, but he was who the Lord had appointed to lead his people along with other godly men to help him. How do you speak about the leaders in our church? When you recognize failures in our elders or see them making decisions, do you second guess their intentions? Do you complain about them and make assumptions? Let's be careful about how we speak about those God has appointed among us 
as elders. Let's be quick to ask questions directly to the elders rather than making assumptions and gossiping about it. You know, when the Moabite women came among the Israelites, the Israelites didn't immediately fornicate and worship Baal overnight. It took a hundred tiny steps in a direction away from worshiping the Lord. They were reckless or thoughtless with their relationship boundaries. They started out by flirting and enjoying the conversation with these new and interesting women. Learn their language a little bit. Learn their culture. One thing led to another. Are you reckless with your relationships? Does the way in which you interact with people of the opposite sex leave you open to temptation or even the accusation of it? Are you currently considering or are in a romantic relationship with someone who's not a Christian? Have you stopped to think about what the Lord has already said about that? Or are you recklessly pursuing that relationship without thinking through the consequences? Telling yourself, look, really, he's a good person. You know, the Lord has been really clear to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're a Christian, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to the Lord. And we're called to follow him fully, to obey him fully, and to trust him that he knows what's best for us, which means not getting married to an unbeliever. You know, when we're, I think the way Mike expressed it earlier in, the, in his prayer, we're, we can be afraid that obeying the Lord will rob us of joy. Doesn't that sound like the Garden of Eden? Feel like God was holding out on us, didn't want to give something good? If that's you this morning, let me tell you, there is no better thing than trusting the Lord fully. He is a loving heavenly Father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. So pursue him, seek first the Lord, and all these other things, he'll take care of it. Redeemer, let's consider how we can live carefully in our relationships as we wait for Christ to return. Well, our second category is resources. You know, Dubai's history has shown that it has a knack for getting rich quick. You know, the whole substance of the city is built on trade and finances, even from the beginning down to the Port and Dera. How do you spend your money? Like the Israelites, do you complain about what the Lord has provided? Do you long for a better car, a better apartment, a better salary? Are you quick to justify the, the purchase of the latest iPhone or the Samsung? Do you buy things with your credit card because you want it? Saying to yourself, it's okay, I'll pay it off next month or the month after. Have you taken loans to pay the rent or to supplement your income with no clear plan of how you'll pay that loan off? If you've never stopped to ask another brother or sister in Christ about whether you should spend that money or not, 
then you may be more reckless with your finances than you'd like to admit. You know, money in particular seems to be one of these things that we think is ours. We don't want to tell anyone what our income is or how we spend it. You know, but the resources that we have as Christians are not just there for our needs, not just there for our comfort. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We belong to him, and that means that all that we have belongs to Christ. All our money, all our time, all our gifts, all our talents, everything that makes up who we are and what we have is his. And it's his for a purpose. The purpose that he's given us together as a church, it's the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. So when we are reckless with our finances, we make it harder to be generous. When we invest money into building earthly kingdoms of comfort, we make it possible, impossible for our finances to be freed up for investment into the eternal kingdom of Christ. But instead, Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians 9, when we sow bountifully, we reap bountifully. That's not a get-rich-quick scheme. That's about investing into the work of making disciples of all nations with all the resources that we have so that there will be bountiful fruit forever and ever. So let's be careful with how we spend our money, with how we use our time, with how we use the resources that we have. But you know, I, I know that there are some among us, many among us, who do not currently have work or are not getting paid. Let me ask you, have you stopped to ask the Lord, should I be here? I mean, sometimes we just, we think, we know what's going on, we just, and we just want to stay here, and so we rush headlong into debt because we think that just over the hill, there will be a land flowing with milk and honey. If I can just pay this visa overstay fine, or if I can just borrow some money to get this situation sorted, I'll get things okay, and I'll get a job, and it'll be all right, and I can stay. So, like Balaam, we hit the donkey, and we get frustrated that things are not working out our way. And we get upset instead of asking the Lord, what are you doing, Lord? Should I be here? Now, I want to be careful and say this. I'm not saying that all job loss is a sign from the Lord that it's time to move. Right? But if we are responding to job loss with recklessness, that is, we rush headlong into debt to try and stay here in spite of not being able to secure a job, in spite of not being able to sustain our family and our lives here financially, then we should at least stop and ask the Lord for his direction. Sit and talk with a brother or sister in Christ. Pray. Ask for wisdom. Now remember, the Lord is the one writing the story, not us. So what is your story? 
Well, more to the point, what will be the story of the rest of your life? Will your story be marked by recklessness? Or will your story be one of faithful obedience to the Lord? A life where you have wisely positioned yourself to maximize your relationships and your resources for investment into an eternal kingdom. You know, the story of Balaam and his donkey is really God's story. It's a real life story written to have a real life influence on our lives. The question is, will we let it? Let's not be reckless. Let's heed the warning. Let's live carefully as we wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus. And when he comes, would he find us faithful and longing for him? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have redeemed us out of spiritual slavery. You have called us out of darkness into light, and you have purchased us with the shed blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to you. Lord, would you help us to consider, to thoughtfully come to your word and evaluate our lives, to see if there would be any recklessness in our way, that we might avoid danger. And Lord, that we would walk in a way that is not reckless, but rather a way that pleases you, a way that brings glory to you, a way that sees that all we have is for you. And Lord, as we do that, Lord, we reject the lie that says that we are missing out on joy if we obey you. And would we find that we find our greatest joy and our greatest delight when we are most satisfied in you and when we are obeying you. Father, would you work this in us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.